Then I'll be seated. Good morning again. If you would take your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 16. We're going to be looking at several passages today. You're going to get a workout. Almost like a sword drill. Mark chapter 16. We're going to be looking at verses 19 and 20. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 24, Acts chapter 1 and other passages relative to the issue of the ascension of Christ. And uh, this is a, a critically important doctrine to the church, one that's been recognized through the ages. It's contained within the creeds and the confessions. But it's something that's often overlooked and perhaps not emphasized as it ought to be. Um, certainly, uh, Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday is important and and it often eclipses the issue of what happens 40 days later um, when Christ ascends to the Father. And we're going to be focusing on uh, the dynamics related to that and the importance of it for us as the redeemed of Christ because it's certainly something that we need to marvel at, wonder at, worship over, and certainly understand and have a comprehensive grasp of. And so today we're going to make an effort to do that as we examine the passage. And before so doing, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we do love you. We thank you for this glorious day. We thank you for the occasion of uh, this reminder of the fact that the tomb is empty and that you are indeed our risen Savior and that you have conquered death for us and that you have paid the cost and that we rest now in the fact that the tomb is empty and that you have done all that is necessary to secure our salvation as we will see today from the passages that we read in your word, that you have also ascended to the Father and that you are doing a mighty work there and continue to do a mighty work there and will until the end of the age. We rejoice in the fact, Lord, that you have provided to us so great a salvation, a salvation that incorporates into it a finality that cannot be undone. The tomb will never be reoccupied. Christ will never be dethroned and we will always rest in his finished work now and forever. We rejoice, Lord, that you have seen fit to save us. We are grateful for the fact that we too have experienced a resurrection, a newness of life, a regeneration to be born again, to be washed and cleansed and purified in the blood of the Lamb, and to be secure in the fact that his work was sufficient and was accepted by you in all respects. May we, as the redeemed of Christ today, marvel at these things. May our hearts be freshened in terms of our desire and our love for Christ. May we have a deeper understanding as a consequence of our study of the Word, not just in terms of information, but a deeper desire to know more about Christ and to indeed love Him more. And out of loving Him, a sense of gratitude that compels us to live and to love and to communicate the wonders of the Gospels to others. We pray, Lord, that you would bless us with the presence of your Holy Spirit today. Our efforts here are in vain without him. We ask, Lord, that the word would go forth powerfully, that it would affect those who hear it. We pray for those who are here today who do not know 
Jesus Christ as their Savior. We ask, Lord, that you would work in their lives, that you would give them life, that you would call them to yourself. We rejoice, Lord, that we can gather today to praise you, to sing to you, to read your word, to worship you in spirit and truth. Thank you, Lord, for all that you have done for us. Thank you for the empty tomb. Thank you for a risen Savior. Thank you for an ascended Savior in whose name we pray. Amen. Mark chapter 16, verse 19. reads as follows. So then, when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received or taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the signs that followed. Let's look at Luke chapter 24. Luke 24, verse 50. Luke chapter 24, verse 50, and he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. Look at Acts chapter 1. Now, it's interesting that the gospel of Luke takes us from Uh, the manger to the throne. And Luke continues his letter to Theophilus with regard to the continuing growth of the church and the evidence of Christ's work in the building of the church and things of that nature. It's really quite compelling. The, The Acts is just an extension of the Gospel of Luke. It just continues then with the work of Christ relative to the consequence of his resurrection and ascension And what we see is that the ascension results in something. The book of Acts is a testament to the validity of Christ's ascension and the fact that as a consequence of it, that something came forth from it, which was what? The church. We see this evidently here as we consider the passage before us. But again, Luke gives us even greater detail relative to this issue of the ascension. Let's begin with verse 1, Acts chapter 1, verse 1. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven. Now, this is an important aspect of the ascension of Christ. Pay attention to the manner in which he was taken. The Father receives the Son. This is an affirmation of him. This is very important. Until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, I I love this question. Lord, is it, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom of Israel? And pay attention to his answer. You would think that if that were a thing, that this is what he would, would, he would not have said the following. But he doesn't do that. He does this. He said to them, 
It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Interesting. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Christ emphasizing the proclamation of the gospel. Not worrying about when certain things are going to happen or a particular event but rather just stay focused on proclaiming the gospel. God will take care of the rest of it. Verse 9, after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. A quite intriguing thought as we consider then this issue of the ascension. And of course, the gospel of Mark is our focus. We're using these other passages to affirm what the gospels recount for us. And as I've noted on numerous occasions in the past, the gospels give us particular facts that are very, very important from, for us to understand. Not just in the, content, in the context of just more knowledge, but to realize that they communicate very important things about the Lord Jesus Christ that we must understand. And in particular, for us here in the Gospel of Mark and in Luke and in the book of Acts, we have an account of something that took place that we ought to be considerate of and understanding of. In Mark chapter 19, we know that Mark says, so when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received or taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And so what we have here in these passages and what we consider today in the context of of this particular day of celebration, we have a risen, ascended, and enthroned Savior. And what we also then understand is that the resurrection necessarily leads to the ascension of Christ. The resurrection becomes a nullity. It becomes void of importance and impact if he does not ascend. He must ascend. And indeed, the ascension is an important aspect of the gospel. Even Peter himself would communicate the significance of the ascension in his sermons relative to the gospel. Turn back to the book of Acts. Let's consider for a moment the significance of that. Acts chapter 3, verses 17 through 21. Here we have Peter's second sermon. And in this passage beginning in verse 21, we'll look at verse 17, but we have a proclamation of the gospel that contains in it the emphasis on the ascension. Look at verse 17, and now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also, but the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophet that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord." and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Peter affirming again the fact of the ascension of Christ and the fact that it had to happen, that it had to occur, and that indeed that is where he is at, that is where he is ruling and reigning. So what we have to understand then is this. The ascension of Jesus Christ is not a mere postscript to the resurrection. It's an event in and of itself and of its own importance. 
We must understand that. Again, the ascension is not a mere postscript. And oh, by the way, yeah, Jesus went to heaven. But because Christ is in heaven, and we're going to be talking about this, we're going to be considering three aspects of the ascension of Jesus Christ. We're going to consider when he went, the timing of it, if you will, where he went, that is, the place that he went to, and what he is doing where he is at. What was his work? What is he accomplishing? So the three things, when he went, where he went, and what he is doing, are things that we're going to consider in the aspect of the ascension of Jesus Christ. Significantly, we'll also consider some Old Testament passages that speak to the importance of the ascension prophesied by Daniel himself and others as well relative to the focus of the ascension of Jesus Christ. So we know from Scripture that the ascension is important. It's important in the Gospels. It's important in the epistles. But in the context of the faith and practice of the church, it seems to have fallen on harsh times. Though affirmed, it does not seem to occupy the same status as Christ's incarnation, death, and resurrection, yet it is of equal importance. And indeed, you cannot separate the other three events from the ascension, because without the ascension, the prior three events, again, are of no consequence. He must go to heaven. One problem in the history of interpretation has been the treatment of the ascension as little more than a dazzling exclamation point for the resurrection rather than as a new event in its own right. Collapsing the ascension into the resurrection puts in jeopardy the continuity between our present world and the higher places of the new order established by God in Christ. It was always the plan of the Father, the Trinity, that there would be a time when Christ would ascend. Indeed, Christ himself would explain that. He kept telling his disciples, I am going to depart. I must depart. I must leave. And if I don't leave, there could be a problem. So Christ's ascension is not merely an explanation point to his resurrection, confirming his deity. And why is that? Well, consider this. Jewish Legend taught that Moses had ascended, and Islam proclaims Muhammad's ascension. However, in neither case is the alleged ascension regarded as introducing a new era of human history in its own right. These stories serve merely to confirm the status that the prophet had already before his ascension. By contrast, the ascension of Christ actually created a new state of affairs in the world. In other words, it is an eschatological, just not historical event. It has profound implications for all of time and frames the current course of history. And so it's important. It not only happens within history, but transforms history in the process. Why is that? Well, with Christ's ascension, The dreary history of this present evil age in bondage to sin and death draws to a close and a new history dawns within that older epoch of time. It is not yet the consummation, but it is the beginning of the consummation with its king as the already glorified Lord of heaven and earth. And earth, and this is what we'll see in the context of the ascension and its importance. Significantly, Christ's ascent has opened up a hole in these last days of our present history through which the Holy Spirit descends, dispensing the spoils of Christ's victory. 
Because of the ascension, there is now present, even in this passing evil age, a new order at work, an underground resistance to the principalities and powers of sin and death. And though we are still living in this present evil age, the powers of the age to come are breaking in upon us in the Spirit through preaching, through evangelism, through the use of spiritual gifts, through the building up of the church and the establishment of the fellowship of the saints. And because Jesus Christ is Lord, which is what takes place in the context of his, of his ascension, one of the aspects of his ascension is his enthronement. He is now Lord, King. Remember, he is prophet, priest, and king. The ascension affirms that. So because Jesus Christ is Lord, we are made alive by the Spirit, drawn away from our alliance with death, and made co-sufferers as well as co-heirs with Jesus Christ. It is the ascension that both grounds the struggle of the church militant and guarantees that one day it will share fully in the triumph of its king as the church triumphant, which is exactly what John does in the book of Revelation in chapter 7. He shows us the picture of the consequences of a ascended Christ and the church triumphant, marveling in the wonder of all that that means for us as the redeemed of Christ. Well, it's significant what the Scripture has to say about this as we consider then the aspects, these three aspects of the ascension of Christ when He went, where He went, and what He is doing. Let's consider the first of these, when He went. Well, when did He go? What had happened? What had transpired? that would give rise to his ascension? What had he accomplished at that point in time? Well, his work was finished. Did he not say on the cross, it is finished? Well, what was finished? It was the work that he had been given, the work that would bring about the salvation of God's people. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21 tells us that he came to save his people, to free them from their sins. And so the consequence of his finished work is the ability to accomplish that which was foretold about what he was going to do. And so he goes because now his work is indeed finished. He has been crucified, well, he has lived a life of 33-some years in complete compliance with all that God requires in every aspect, in act, in deed, in thought, without any sin in any context, no shade or variance in his character, always fulfilling all that God would require, the ascension is an affirmation of that very fact. And he could not ascend if, in fact, that had not taken place. So for you and me, when we look at the Gospel of Mark, and you can turn back there, and even for his disciples at that time, that is a great statement of fact relative to the fact that he did that all was, that was required of him. Verse 19, so then, when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven. Notice who took him, the Father. The Father takes him. Of course, the Father does that joyfully, lovingly, graciously to receive his Son, to give him all that has been promised. So he can take his rightful place of authority and power, which is at the right hand of the Father. The right hand of the Father. And so we have to be attentive to the fact that the Father then taking him says to us that the work of the Son was indeed completed and accepted by him. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. 
You and I take great comfort in that. Because if the Father does not accept him, if the Father does not receive him, if the Father does not take him up, then we are hopeless people. We have no hope. We have no comfort. We have no confidence that anything that he did was sufficient to secure our salvation. And this points to the fact that his work indeed was perfect in all respects. Let's look at Psalm 24. Psalm 24 paints a picture of this ascension. A psalm of David. Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? And who may stand in his holy place? Look, Look at this. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. This is speaking of Christ. Only Christ could do that perfectly. He's not telling you in the context of the psalm to try to do these things that you can be the one who ascends into the hill. He is speaking prophetically of the one that would be able to do that. That is Jesus Christ. So keep in mind that when he ascends, it's an affirmation of the fact that he indeed has clean hands and a pure heart, who he has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. He shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, even Jacob. Now look at verse 7. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Now, it's interesting at the end of that psalm that there's a, there's a, there's a reference to pausing for praise, salah, or selah, however you want to say it. But you, you are to reflect on the wonders and the magnitude of that which has just been communicated to you, to marvel in the fact that Jesus Christ is the one who is entering in through these doors that are ancient, that he is the one who is of pure heart and clean hands and has not spoken deceitfully. This is why he was able to go. His work was finished. He was this person, the Savior, Jesus Christ, the man, Jesus Christ. Let's not forget that in the context of the adequacy of his sacrifice and his ability to go in that regard as well. He is the only one with the clean hands and the pure heart. Who can ascend Yahweh's hill? Can you? Can you do it? Are you trying? How's that going for you? Is that working out? Well, it can't work out because you don't have clean hands and a pure heart. Indeed, you weren't even born with them. Tainted by sin. And the wages of sin is death, of course, as we know from Scripture. As we consider this song in, the, in, the, in Psalm 24, we see that Christ leads this triumphal band behind him, which is a beautiful picture as well. 
We have here then the last Adam who has triumphed, fulfilling the covenantal trial, and now he ascends to his throne at the Father's right hand in Sabbath glory, in full rest. His work is done, and because his work is done, my work is done. I get to rest in his finished work. I get to marvel in his finished work because he has ascended the hill of Yahweh. This causes us to worship, of course. And this truly is the triumphal entry, is it not? If we're going to talk about triumphal entries, this is the triumphal entry. The ascension is the triumphal entry of Christ into the glory of heaven to receive all that he was due because of who he was and what he has done. And what we find then from Scripture And we could spend a lot of time talking about it, but this is important, that only Christ perfectly fulfills this commission and is qualified to demand that the ancient doors of the heavenly throne room open to his triumphal entry with his liberated host behind him, the church triumphant, Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7 isn't speaking to some unique group of people who survived some brief period of tribulation in some future context. No, it's speaking to the fact that Christ is leading and will continue to lead into his presence, into the glory of the throne room, the redeemed that he saved. Because the Father has accepted his work, it is finished. He claims his victory. Announcing, behold, I and the children God has given me. Look at Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. As we consider this issue of, of, uh, of when he went and why he could be there, Hebrews chapter 2 is important for us as we consider the significance of the ascension of Jesus Christ. distinct and separate as its own unique event worthy of our consideration. So look at Hebrews chapter 2. Let's begin with, um, with verse 10. Now consider the language here. This is so beautiful. This is so powerful. And I want you to think about this as we're considering this issue of the ascension, what this means for you. Verse 10, Hebrews chapter 2, for it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, look at this passage. Behold, I and the children whom God has given me. That's you. That's me, the redeemed of Christ. And because Christ ascends, we know that these promises are fulfilled and that in the context of our hope and our future, I can rest in the fact that God has promised this and indeed that this proclamation will be made. Behold, look, I and the children whom God has given me follow in my train. They enter in with me because they have been purified in me. The Father has accepted my work. The work is done. The work is finished. All whom you have given to me, I have indeed secured. I have saved them. And they will be secure forever. Consider as well then, 
the following, verse 14, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Oh, there's a lot there. We could talk about that for a very, very long time. You and I, in the context of what the author is speaking of here, are part of that, the descendants of Abraham, the seed of Christ, bought and paid for, secured in his finished work. Verse 17, therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things. So we're talking about, about, about when he went. So the idea of there, something had to happen, something had to take place, something had to be finished and finalized, and we're finding out what that is. Verse 17, this passage in Hebrews is telling us that. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. This is indeed powerful this is assurance. This is confidence. I can rest in this, and I know that I can rest in it because Mark tells me, and there are witnesses to this, Mark tells me that he was taken up, that the Father took him. The language is more explicit in Luke and Acts in the context of the fact that it was the Father who was bringing him up. And we also know that Mark affirms the fact that when he was taken up, that, he, that something happened to him in the context of his ascension, and that is that he was given the place of authority as a king enthroned at the right hand of the Father. The right hand of the Father. Now, well, there's so much here, but this gives me great assurance. This gives me great confidence. I, I look at this and I consider and I ponder. I got Mark, I've got Luke, I've got Luke again in Acts. He's writing to somebody to communicate facts. He wants Theophilus to understand the importance of these events, one of which is the ascension. It's interesting to me that the ascension then is followed by an eruption of the work of the Holy Spirit bringing about the creation of the church. The redemption of people, Acts 13, 48, we see the power of the preaching, and as many as God had appointed were saved. Why? The consequence of preaching, the work of the Holy Spirit. We see churches being planted, churches erupting all over, the cause of Christ exploding, all because he has ascended. He's been accepted by the Father. He has been enthroned. He is now carrying out that which is all part and parcel of his work. It is the totality of everything the magnitude of it, the wonder of it. His triumphal entry with his liberated host behind him. Think about that, liberated, freed. That's you and me. We are liberated. We are free. If you're not here, if you're here today and do not know Jesus Christ, you are not free. Oh, you may be an American. You may claim all your rights of liberty in that context, but I will tell you that you are not free. And there is no freedom until you're in Christ. Those who are in Christ are free indeed. Free indeed. And it's because of his ascension. 
Ultimately, what we find then in the ascension of Jesus Christ is that he descends in order to bring God to humanity, and he ascends to bring humanity to God. Interesting parallel in that way. So, where does he go? Where does he go? Well, Paul tells us. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8. So, look at Romans chapter 8 with me. So, we know when he went. He went when his work was finished, when he had accomplished all that the Father had given him to do. We see in Hebrews that he did all those things in the context of being able to be our propitiation, our sin bearer in that way. And in Romans chapter 8, look what Paul says. Look at verse 33. Well, go back to 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Now, keeping in mind that that phrase incorporates into it the doctrine of the ascension of Jesus Christ. Because God has brought all those things to fruition, Paul is incorporating all that theology into this statement. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Look at verse 34. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised. Now look, look what Paul does. He doesn't just leave it at the resurrection, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So we have a very important fact, a theological fact that is communicated by Paul based upon what we know from the Gospels to be true, his ascension. We have eyewitnesses. Mark proclaims it. Luke proclaims it. It's there in Scripture for us. You must believe it. That's why it's there. And so in believing it, then I go to this passage, and and the consequences of where he went is of great magnitude for me. Because I know that in the context of where he is right now, that he is continuing to act as my Savior. That action has not been forfeited or abrogated or just cast aside. Indeed, he continues, and where he is is important to me. He is at the right hand of God, and he is making intercession for me, for you. If he does not ascend, he cannot do that. If he stays here behind, some people will say, well, why didn't he just stay? Think how much better it would be if he had just stayed. No, he was just one man. But when he leaves, he gives his spirit, and we have all of that implications that that flow out of that. We have the book of Acts. We have the rest of the history of mankind and the propagation of the gospel through the preaching of the word. So beautiful. So wonderful. If you want to, you can take the time. We don't have time this morning. Time is flying by. It's amazing. Daniel 7, verses 13 through 14, speaks to the fact of this future ascension and consummation of the work of Christ. But, but here, I want to show you something. Look at this. So if we go back to Mark, go back to Mark with me for a minute. And then, and then we're going we're gonna to run over to uh, Revelation. But I want to sh- show you something because we forget stuff like this. We forget what the Bible does for us. This is just fantastic because 
We, we know where he's going. We're being told by Mark. Now look at this. So then when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of God, okay? So you want to you see a picture of what that looks like in real time? Go to Revelation 5. Revelation chapter 5. Here is, here is the immediate consequences of this. Now, John is there, verses 1 through 5 explain the context. John is there, he's weeping, he doesn't understand what's going to happen. Who is going to open up the book? Who is going to break the seals? What's going to happen? Now, this is, a, this is amazing. In the context of his ascension, John then gives us the picture of what he does. Verse 6, And I saw... Between the throne with four living creatures and the elders, a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all, all the earth. And he came and he took the book out of, him, out of the right hand of, of him who sat on the throne. Mark tells me he sat down at the right hand of God. When he sits down, John tells me he is given something by the Father. He's given the book, metaphorically speaking, where he then begins to unfold all of human history under his control as the ascended king who is enthroned. So, what happened? So my real-time picture, as I'm reading the Gospel of Mark, as I'm looking at Luke 24 and Acts 1, I can go to Revelation 5, and I'm getting a real-time picture of exactly what's happening upon his ascension. Verse 8, when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, that's all of the redeemed in the context of, 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 of the church and the Old Testament and the New Testament fell down before him. The lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book and break its seals. So we talked about the fact, when did he go? Because he's now worthy to do it. What did he do when he got there? He did what he was supposed to do. He acts like the king who is enthroned. He acts in authority, bringing about a new epic of time in the context of history. It's in his hands. He's controlling it. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Wow. That's the ascension. That's the consequences of it. That's what we're being shown. This is why the doctrine of the ascension is so important. You struggle with assurance, you go here. You struggle with fear and anxiety, you go here. Because he's there. And John tells me that. There are so many other passages. Ephesians 1, 19 through 21. Philippians 2, verses 8 through 11. Hebrews 9, 24. We see all these wonderful passages of what it is that he is doing. And where he went. Well, what is he doing there? Well, we understand that he is in, for our third point, Christ is in a state of exaltation. What does that mean? So, so it's just not that people are singing his praises. No, the state of exaltation is that he is the Lord. 
That means that he is the king. He has the right to rule and reign, and he is. He has not given up anything. I know sometimes it feels like he has, and the world is a mess and chaotic, but he is in control of everything. But besides that fact, he's doing something for you and for me. Look at Hebrews. Oh, look at this. What is he doing there? Is he just sitting around and just talking to the Father and talking to John the Baptist and chatting with Paul, having a conversation with Charles Spurgeon, George Whitfield, Augustine? No. No, he's engaged in something for you and for me. And this is the consequence of the ascension. This is what he is doing now. Verse 23 of Hebrews 7 says, the former priest, Hebrews 7, 23, the former priest on the one hand existed in great numbers because they were prevented by death from, from continuing. <laughs> oh, wow, wow. But Jesus on the other hand, notice a specific reference to Jesus, all right? But Jesus on the other hand, because he continues forever, We understand that because in heaven, that's where he is. He continues forever in the context of that. Hold his priesthood permanently. So in the context of his ascension, what he is doing is acting as my priest, your priest. Look at this, verse 25. Therefore, if you think you can lose your salvation, you've got a massive problem with Hebrews 7.25. And I would submit to you that you just need to get saved, and I pray that God will save you. Verse 25, therefore, he is able also to save forever. Not maybe, not temporarily, not if come, not if you get through the great white throne judgment. Not if you can just hold on long enough to get there and find out if you are saved. No final justification, no future salvation. He says forever. And when God says forever, he means what? Forever. Forever. Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to what? Make intercession for them. He's my lawyer. He's my advocate. He is continually advocating on my behalf. John Tucker is clothed in my righteousness. John Tucker is clothed in my righteousness. John Tucker is clothed in my righteousness. Constantly, constantly making it, that never stops in any context. Is that what Christ is doing for you right now? Or are you sitting here thinking to yourself, this guy's a kook. I've got it down. I know I'm good enough to get into heaven. Who does he think he is? How dare he tell me it's not enough. I have not done enough. He doesn't know how good I am. He didn't see me yesterday mowing my neighbor's yard or whatever. No, friends. It, it don't, that stuff is filthy rags. I want... I want him. I want him. Because he'll never stop. I'll stop, I'll fail every day, all day long. Don't you? 
You may wake up in the morning with the most noblest intentions and say to yourself, I'm just not going to sin today. And I'll guarantee you, by the time you finished your coffee, you've sinned. In fact, the fact that you said it was a sin. So there you go. Because that's pride and that's sin. So the focus then in the context of the ascension is knowing then that, that, that he went because he could, because he had done what he had to do. He went to a specific place where he received with great exaltation, enthroned as the king, standing as the lamb as if slain, to which all responded in glorious praise. And as he is there and there now, he continues to make intercession for me as one of his redeemed. Behold my child. Because he has ascended. Because he has ascended. I could go on and on. I've got more notes. There's enough here for five sermons. But I'll leave you with this because time is slipping away. Look at this. Let's just finish with Hebrews. We can't do it any better. Verse 26. Look at this. Look what, look what God has done for us in Christ. If this doesn't move your heart, if this doesn't cause you to just cry out, for it was fitting. Oh, man, there's so much there. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest. That goes into so much theology in the context of what God was doing to bring about the salvation of his people. That promise in Matthew 21 was not a hollow one. He will save his people from their sins. And he did. And the author of Hebrews affirms it for me because he says, for it was fitting for us to have such a high priest. Look at why. Look at all the things. Holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. Forever. If that doesn't move you, then you are dead and cold. Here's the good news. You don't have to be dead and cold. As I said at the beginning, this can be your resurrection Sunday. I've asked this question many times. Do you know him? Do you know this Jesus? Or are you resting in your own self-righteousness? If you are, he's not making intercession for you. He's not making intercession for you. Indeed, rather, he is your judge. Lord, Lord, did we not do great things in your name? Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I never knew you.
Dear friends, you must believe in the ascended Christ. You must rest fully in His finished work. And it's easy to do. All who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Shall be saved. I want you to think right now, where are you with Christ? Is He making intercession or is He your judge? What will you do with Him? What? In God's good providence, you're here today. It is by no mistake that you are here hearing this today. What are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with it? May the Holy Spirit open your heart and your mind to hear the word of the Lord today. Today. Look to Christ. Cry out to Him. And He will save you. Let's pray. Our blessed Father, thank You for the fact that Christ is ascended, seated at Your right hand, interceding because He can. You accepted Him and received Him. You enthroned Him. And now He continues His work on my behalf, on our behalf. Praise Your name. To God be the glory alone. Thank You, Lord, for the ascended Christ. May we always marvel, may our hearts be renewed and refreshed today to know that He is ascended and that His work continues. We praise You in the name of Jesus Christ. Keep us, bless us, preserve us for Your glory and for Your honor. In the name of Christ, amen.